Well, let's turn, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. This is the final session of our Why Sacrifice series. And so if you're making notes, the title for this message is Money and Our Divine Opportunity. If you're visiting with us this morning, I'm so sorry that we're preaching on money. That's not the normal here at Sovereign Grace. And yet understanding that Jesus talks about giving, nearly 15% of his words relating to treasures and money and possessions. So we want to make sure we are spending some time on this. Not primarily because we need the money, because we don't. God's been very gracious to us. But our hearts need these types of talks so that we can understand what giving is all about and why it's working in such a way. So money and our divine opportunity. 2 Corinthians 9, and we're going to read from verse 6 through to the end of verse 15. If you've got a Bible, follow it along. If you haven't, no dramas, just listen in. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all of your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for encountering us in our sung worship. Lord, thank you for the privilege and the truth that as we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. Oh Lord, I thank you that having taken up the offering and have gone through the notices, you haven't departed from us, but you're still near. Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to this word? Would you help us to engage with the truth that is contained within these words? Lord, I pray that all this would come with the background of your great sacrifice for us. There is no sacrifice that in any point in our lives we can offer that would equal the sacrifice that you have given for us. Lord, then as an expression of our worship to you, would we listen to you so that we may play our part in sacrificing in a way that brings you pleasure. In Jesus' name. Amen. In the last school holidays, um, Emma and I decided that we would take our three children um, 
out for a surprise day and they didn't know where we were going to go before the day started but we loaded them into the car and then we loaded onto the train which they were very excited about particularly a double decker train because that's that's a lot of fun double decker trains in britain that means one's on the roof but here people are still inside which is good and so we got onto this double decker train went upstairs and they're like where are we going and we explained to them on the way that we are going to luna park we are heading into the city to luna park they were absolutely ecstatic they had smiles the size of you know, King Kong, ear to ear. They were just so excited that we were finally going to Luna Park. And so we got there and they got their little wristbands so they could go on all the different rides. And then they discovered that a lot of the rides they weren't really that into until we walked into Coney Island. Oh, now that place is legendary, isn't it? Absolutely amazing. I wanted a wristband then just so I could play on everything because it was just so much fun in there and all the different things and activities were just absolutely legendary, particularly that, that, that gravitator thing. Oh, that's amazing, isn't it? That's like a family event. So you all sit in the middle, and then they turn it on, and you spin off, and Josh is trying to push the girls off with his shoe, and Lydia's trying to hang on with her teeth. You know where it is. And we just had a lot of fun together as a family. And just the whole day for us was just an absolute blast. And you see, the reason why probably we enjoyed it so much was not primarily Luna Park. I think the thing that brought Emma and I great pleasure was the pleasure that it was giving to the kids. You see, for all of us, we all love and find joy in bringing pleasure to those we love, don't we? It's the way we work. And so if you're a parent, you will know that there is great joy in bringing pleasure to your children. If you're married, you will know that it's, there's great joy in bringing pleasure to your spouse when they are happy, when they are smiling, when they are enjoying themselves. There's great joy in that for us. In our friendships and in our lives and all the different things we do in our lives, there's great joy in bringing one another pleasure, particularly when we love them. There's always great joy in bringing pleasure to those we love. And that, as a principle, should be put over 2 Corinthians 9. Because in 2 Corinthians 9, we discover what God loves. We discover that we have the opportunity in our lives to do something that brings God pleasure, that brings God love, something that he quite literally loves. And here it is in verse 7. God loves a cheerful giver. You want to know what God loves? Here's one of the things. He loves a cheerful giver. And that then gives us really the third reason as to why sacrifice Reason one we looked at a few weeks ago, the whole premise that giving and sacrifice gives us the opportunity to point our hearts to things above. Remember the words of Jesus? Where our treasures are, there are our hearts. So, don't store up treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven. He's trying to help us see that your treasures in your hearts are intrinsically linked. And so use your treasures to point your hearts to things above. And the way you sacrifice, that plays a part in pointing our hearts, so we want our hearts to be on Jesus. Last week then, Mark, I thought, just did an outstanding job of helping us see that giving, number two, is also an opportunity for us to trust God. It's an opportunity to give in such a way whereby we need to trust God and we have to trust God and it puts us on to dependency in Him. But the third reason why we sacrifice, which is today, is that sacrifice through cheerful giving gives us the opportunity to do something that God loves. Sacrifice is a divine opportunity. A divine opportunity to do something that God loves, namely cheerful giving. Now, in terms of background to this text, because it's going to help you, the background to this text 
is an offering that the Corinthian church have agreed to take up for the Jewish, the Jerusalem Christians. Christians in the Jerusalem are going through major hardship. They're going through major persecution. They're going through major hardship as, as a company, as a church. And so the Corinthian church have agreed to take up an offering for them, to help them, and to help them in their poverty and in the affliction and the trial that they are undergoing. One year before Paul penned this letter, the Corinthians had agreed to that. They did actually already give an offering, but they said, Paul, when you come back, we want to give some more. And so he's writing to them to kind of remind them of that. He's writing them to remind them that, you know what? That offering that you said you were going to give, we're ready for it now. And so start getting yourself together. Start handing the basket around the church because we're going to need the money because over here in Jerusalem, it is seriously difficult. They are going to need the money that you're promising. And so he writes to them to remind them, remind them that they said that they would give but also to encourage them and exhort them in the opportunity that they have. See, the Apostle Paul knows, like we all know, that sometimes, even when we agree to something, and it sounds good at the time, after a while we change our minds a little bit, or the novelty wears off, and then we don't fancy it quite as much. So he writes to them and says, Listen, you're not going to have to give today, but I'm coming soon, and start to prepare your hearts again for the opportunity that you have in giving. In chapter 8 then, he encourages them through the example of the Macedonians. And the Macedonians are absolutely legend of a guys. They're just the way they live their lives is full on for Jesus. And it also, I think, is a, a great provocation, not only for Corinthians, but, but also for us. I mean, listen, look at it. Chapter 8, verse 2. It says, for in, severe, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favour of taking part in the relief of the saints. That is full on for Jesus, man. I mean, the Macedonians themselves are undergoing major affliction. The Macedonians themselves are going through major poverty and yet they have gathered as a local church and given to the Jewish Christians not only according to their means, but well beyond their means. And Paul wants to encourage the Corinthians with that. Not to try and manipulate them or sort of say, you know, the Macedonians are really good, you really suck. That's not what he's saying. But he is trying to say, listen, your brothers and sisters over there, check it out. This was their faith. This was the way they give to the mission that you're also giving to. And so bear them in mind in the way you give. In chapter 9, verse 7 then, he encourages the Corinthian church theologically with the point that we've said, that God loves a cheerful giver. In chapter 9 then, from verses 6 through 15, he also encourages them practically. You see, there's nothing worse, is there not, than knowing that you have the ability to bring somebody pleasure, but not knowing how. So you, you see it, but it's like the golden chalice that you can't quite get to. And so, so what the Apostle Paul does here in verses 6 through 15 is he explains to the Corinthian church how you can be the cheerful givers that God loves. He wants them to exercise this. He wants them to know that this is something you have the divine opportunity of doing. And he so wants it to function in their lives, he goes on to tell them how. How they can be the cheerful givers that God loves. You know, for us 2,000 years on, I think this is seriously good news. You see, this opportunity that we have to do something that God loves hasn't waned. It's still there. 
And so if we truly love Jesus in our lives, that could, should, should cause our ears to completely prick up and think, this is amazing. We have, set to, we have the ability to do something that God loves. But 2,000 years on, this is also a divinely practical piece of information for us that should enthuse our hearts. See, if we want to be the cheerful givers that God loves, quite simply, here's how. This is God's word. God breathed. This isn't just a letter from Paul to the Corinthians. It's now a letter from God to us, instructing us as his people, gathering us together as his people, and not only indicating to us something that he loves, but then explaining to us how we can do that, how we can be the cheerful givers. So there's three things I want us to look at today, three things that Paul makes it very clear to us that we need to do so that we can be the cheerful givers that God's called us to be. So number one, we need to understand the law of sowing and reaping. We need to understand the law of sowing and reaping. Paul says this in verse 6. He says, the point is this. Well, that's a pretty full-on way of introducing something. You know, he's nailing it out there for Jesus. He's saying, all right, whatever else you think, lovely. But the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. You see, a very real fuel behind cheerful giving is not some rich uncle somewhere, okay? I mean, I don't know about you, but at different times in my life, I often thought if I was absolutely loaded, I could give cheerfully all the time. It wouldn't be a problem. And if I had a great uncle actually giving me lots of money, then I could be even more cheerful about it because it's not even mine. Happy Jesus. Have, have this with Jesus. I mean, it would just be lovely. I just, but that's not really the secret behind cheerful giving. Likewise, the secret behind cheerful giving is not blind irresponsibility. I grew up in a very charismatic church. So I remember one conference, them encouraging all the, all the people there to get out our wallets and hold them above our heads and laugh hilariously at them because God loves a cheerful giver. That's lovely, completely out of context, and heresy. But, you know, that is not the answer to cheerful giving. It's not just having a jolly good laugh at my wallet. My wallet is so empty, it could be very funny for many. But that is not the point of cheerful giving. The fuel behind cheerful giving is understanding the creation law of sowing and reaping. See, the Macedonians, they got that. They understood it, and the fruit of that was cheerful giving. And Paul wants now the Corinthians to understand that. And so right up front, he says, the point is this. And he starts communicating to them about the creation law of sowing and reaping. See, the first part of that law, to understand it, there's really two parts. The first part of understanding the creation law of sowing and reaping is understanding that where you sow, you will reap a harvest. That doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. It's just part of creation law. Where you sow, you will reap. So where your time goes, where your energy goes, where your gifts go, where your abilities go, where your resources go, that's where you reap. But there's another part to this creation law of sowing and reaping, which is this. To understand it, we also have to understand that the manner in which we sow, we also reap. So it's not only where we sow, but it's the manner in which we sow. And so as Paul is saying, if we sow sparingly, guess what? You reap sparingly. 
If you sow bountifully, well, then you reap bountifully. And what Paul, I think, wants us to understand as a church is that in God's grace, cheerful givers get that. Cheerful givers understand the divine opportunity that giving has within it. Cheerful givers understand that they have the opportunity to sow into something that has an everlasting purpose. See, nobody is going to be that impressed in heaven when we get there and God says, so what did you do with your life? And you say, well, just to let you know, I am very, very good on the Wii and my PS3 abilities are profound. Well, where did you invest your money? Well, I, I saw a lot of soccer games. I could name every person in the AFL. Well, well done. Congratulations. Who cares? A cheerful giver understands that when they sow into the kingdom of God, they are sowing into something that by the grace of God lasts forever. It's everlasting. It continues on. People's lives are changed and affected for all eternity. Our families are enriched. Things take place. Where we sow matters. And a cheerful giver understands this is a profound opportunity to give and play a part in the expanding of the kingdom using my money that isn't even mine anyway. It's actually God's and I'm called to steward it. But using some of it for the advancement of the kingdom of God, what a profound opportunity. The cheerful giver understands that and they also understand that in the way they sow, that if they sow bountifully, then by the incredible, scandalous grace of God, they will receive a return on that, both in the temporary and in the eternal. You see, we often don't like to talk about that. We don't like to think about that. We don't like to think that, well, I'm just, I'm just giving. I don't want any return. Thank you very much. But that's often stoicism and cantism. That's not necessarily what the Bible talks about. So we'll come on to that in a moment because it's important. You see, so often I think when we think of sacrifice... And when we think of giving, I think our minds so often go to what we sow, right? So somebody talks about sacrifice and you think, oh my, yeah, we're going to be talking about sowing and we're going to be talking about how much we should give for the glory of God. But that's not what Paul is saying here. The focus that Paul wants our gaze to be on is not actually on our sowing. It's on our reaping. You see, the sublime question that is really attached to verse 6 is simply this. In what manner do you want to reap? He's not on about sowing. He's on about reaping. In what manner do you in your life want to reap? See, I think that can, as I said a moment ago, make us feel so uncomfortable because for often, particularly in the evangelical circles, we've seen a few things. Firstly, I think we've seen money be abused in different places, right? It's a part of life. And if you turn on the God channel, you could probably find it within a few hours that you'll see it. Put your hand on the screen and pray. And now reach for your credit card. And you think, yeah, it's been so abused that you think it just puts you off. Any sense of really talking about this at any length and any sense of talking about you know, how God could bless us through this, it's just like we, we don't want it. So we've seen it abused. And I think also then, because historically in evangelical teaching, there's quite a lot of stoicism and can't. I think part of the fruit can that be is we have this idea that to be motivated in any sense for reward to come is wrong. It's almost naughty. But not according to Jesus. See, in the Bible, it's Jesus himself that says, listen, where your treasures are, there is your heart. So don't store up treasures on earth. Store up treasures in heaven. 
He's asking you to store them up in heaven. He's talking about that. It's Jesus himself that talks to us about living for his well done. Well, that's, that's a reward. He's saying be motivated by that. It's Jesus himself that talks about different crowns, different rewards that take place within the heavenly realms. Listen, if you make it to heaven without any doubt, like me, it will be because Christ and Christ alone has died for us. That is the only way in. It's got nothing to do with what you do for Jesus. It's got all to do with what Jesus has done for you. And that alone, the story ends there. But then as Jesus communicates to us as Christians... One of the things he wants us to realize is heaven is not a one-size-fits-all. It's just not. It's not painted that way in, in, in any scriptural context. Clearly, there's differences. Some people are going to be asked to rule over cities and towns. Some people are going to be asked to rule over angels. Some people are going to see, receive various different crowns. It's part of the way it is. And so it should be no surprise to us that Paul looks us in the eye and says, Listen. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. He doesn't want us to be motivated to be selfish, but he does want us to be motivated about pleasing God and understanding that if we sow bountifully, we will reap bountifully. So, back to the question. In what manner do you want to reap? What do you want it to look like? In your marriages... For those of you that are married, in what manner do you want to reap? Do you want a marriage that is thriving for the glory of God? Do you want a marriage where you're feeling a closeness and an intimacy with your spouse that is reflective of Christ and the church? Do you want a marriage that really starts to reflect in its fullness what Christ and the church is into our communities? You do? Well, if you want to reap bountifully, you must sow bountifully. Don't expect to put nothing into your marriage and then find that, oh, I can't understand it. Why am I not reaping bountifully? Well, because you're sowing sparingly. What about in your families, your relationships with your children? You want to reap bountifully? You want your children to look up to you? You want your children to respect you and honor you and love to be with you? That's great. That's called reaping bountifully within the context of our families. Well, understand then that this law is at work. You've got to sow bountifully. There's got to be time and energy and resource going in. What about our relationship with God? You want to reap bountifully in your relationship with God? You want to know Him, know His closeness, know His nearness, walk with Him every day in your life? You want to know as you are walking through for the glory of God that He is near and with you? Well then, so bountifully into your time, into that relationship, to spend time with Him and in prayer and in speech and in conduct... It's not rocket science stuff, is it? It's a creation law. And the same is true when it comes to the local church. In this local church, Sovereign Grace Church, Sydney, in what manner do we want to reap? What do you want to reap? See, we arrived last year, 2010, and one pastor and his wife. What do you want it to look like in five years from now? What do you want it to look like in ten years from now? Do you want to be a church that is reaping bountifully? Because I do. Do you want to be a church where there is a growing pastoral team of men equipped to serve God's people? Do you want to be a church that by God's grace is becoming an example and a model where men can be trained for pastoral ministry and then sent out across Sydney and across Australia where churches can be planted? 
Do you want to be a church where relationships are deepening, where the spiritual gifts are being exercised, where we come to church and we gather as God's people and we cannot help but explode into worship as we worship our Creator and King? Do you want to be in that type of church that is really starting to influence a community, people that are brandishing the gospel and going into our local communities and beginning to communicate the gospel and in which people are getting saved? I do. That's called reaping bountifully. So the question is then, is your sowing commensurate to what you want to reap? Because if it's not, we're never going to reap it. We've got to sow bountifully. We have to sow in our resources, in our time, in our energies, and in our monies. In what manner do we want to reap? The cheerful giver quite simply just gets it. They just understand it. They understand the divine opportunity that is before them and so they don't care less about the opportunity to give as in they're not, they don't want it to be sparing. They want it to be a great opportunity. This is amazing that we get to do this. And they understand that as they sow bountifully, they will reap a harvest for themselves and for their local church by God's grace and for his glory. The Macedonians understood that. Paul wants the Corinthians to understand it. I want sovereign grace to understand it. But that's not all. Number two. We need to prepare our hearts in advance. Verse 7 says it this way. He says, Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion. The NIV, if you're reading that, says, Each man should give as he has decided in his heart to give. What Paul is talking about here is that act of, of careful contemplation and prayer. It's a real preparation of the heart before the Lord, before it comes to the opportunity of actually giving to the Lord. He makes it very clear that the reason why we must do that is so that we don't then give under reluctance or under compulsion. That's why we have no surprise offerings here at Sovereign Grace Church, okay? You're never going to arrive on a Sunday morning, guess what, surprise, it's offering week. You know, it's just random, it's very strange. You don't want to be doing that because when you do that, people will give because they're faithful but they'll give either reluctantly or under compulsion. And so you can't be doing surprise offerings for Jesus. People need to prepare their hearts in advance for the glory of God. That's why Paul is sending this letter on ahead. He doesn't just rock up to the Corinthian church and say, oh, while I'm here, let's take up the offering. He sends a letter to them ahead and says, listen, here's one of the things I want you to start considering, start preparing your hearts about. You know the offering that you said you were going to give? We all need to prepare our hearts in advance. And the primary reason why we need to prepare our hearts in advance is because our hearts, whether we like it or not, have a sinful tendency, don't they? See, I think so often, and I've been, I've done it in my life, I think so often when it comes to the topic of giving and we come to preparing our hearts, I think sometimes we, we think that we're sitting across from our heart that actually looks like a very kind little old grandmother. And all she wants to do is encourage you that, David, what a wonderful opportunity this is. What a wonderful opportunity to trust God and to take as much money as you possibly can and to sow it into the kingdom of God. Doesn't that sound a lovely idea? We think that our hearts are like some sweet little old grandmother that are going to help us on the way and live for Jesus. (laughs) But unless my heart is very different from yours, that's not what my heart is. My heart is not some sweet little old grandmother. My heart is Vinny, the used car salesman. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) See, I sit down opposite the table with my heart and we start discussing money 
And Vinny doesn't want to encourage me on my way to give generously and trust in Jesus. Vinny wants to talk to me about a few concerns he's got. Because Vinny's got a few concerns about this whole idea. And so Vinny sits me down very quickly and says, oh, Dave, um, here's the thing, Dave. Um, I understand you, your heart is to give, and I love that about you. I, th- I think that's just so kind and so gracious. It's an evidence of grace in your life. But I think the wisest way forward right now would be for you, you to sow into the kingdom of God by sowing into your savings scheme for your deposit for your house. Because if you can get a deposit for your house instead of giving it to the church, if you can give a deposit for your house, you'll be able to buy a house and then show great hospitality to the church. And wouldn't that be lovely? So Dave, I think you need to use your money right now for, for housing deposit. Oh, and Dave, uh, just thinking, uh, you do remember, right, that you came to plant a church in Sydney, in one of the most expensive parts of Sydney, that is one of the most expensive parts of the whole world, so give yourself a break. (laughs) I mean, you would have been so much more well-off staying in Wales, but now you've come here, this isn't looking so good for you, and so give yourself a break. And Dave, I know you, I, I know that your temptation is not necessarily towards materialism, So let's just work at it like this. As you serve the church, God is blessing you financially so that you can enjoy his grace through what you have. And so this is the way we're going to operate. So just keep your money for the glory of God because that is clearly God's blessing. I mean, what do you want to do? Give it back to him as some sort of cheap offering as if to say, I don't even want your gift? That's just crazy, Dave. Our hearts are so deceitful, right? And they screw us around and they mess us around. The final thing that my heart always says to me is this, Dave, It's true in the Bible that God loves a cheerful giver. And I want you to know, if you give in the way you've planned, I will have a very sad face on. (laughs) And so just, what do I do? Our hearts always try and deceive us. They spend hours trying to deceive us. Ever since Satan did this in the garden, we still live with it today. Our hearts are not some sweet little old grandmother trying to help us on our way. They're deceitful. And that's why, by God's grace, we should always be weary about our heart's initial response to giving sacrificially. We need to be weary of it. We need to be sceptical of it. Our heart's initial response is is barely ever, fantastic, another opportunity to give, let's do this. It's not. It shares its concerns with us very quickly and tries to reason with us as to why this should be for everybody else, but probably not us. It's the way our hearts operate. And that is why, according to the Apostle Paul, we must prepare our hearts in advance. We've got to talk to them. We've got to understand them. And we have to minister to them. Now, three points of application on this one. Some ideas for you. You don't have to do them, but hopefully they'll encourage you. Number one, look in your diary and plan a time to contemplate and pray about what God would have you give. Plan it out. Look in your diary and provide a time, an unhurried time, where you can genuinely, prayerfully consider what would the Lord have you give? I mean, look, we've just started another year at Sovereign Grace Church, right? So it's a good opportunity to spend some time, I think, in our own lives to say, okay, Lord, year two, how much would you want me to give this year? What would giving sacrificially and generously, like the Macedonians, what would that look like for me? Lord, you know my bank account. How does this work? And begin to provide some time to to prepare and consider those things. See, one of the questions I often get asked is how much should you give? How much is, is right to give? What should you do? And it's a really hard one to answer. 
You see, in the Old Testament, there was a principle of tithing. And people say, yeah, but that doesn't count because it's the law. Yeah. The problem is, it's a principle that predated the law. So this was pre-law. This was, a, this was a principle very early on in Scripture that 10%, a portion of your money, right off the bat, is given as first fruits for the glory of God. And so for me in my life, one of the things I've done, I'm not talking about you now, I'm talking about me. For me in my life, I've always worked on 10% of my income, whether that, whatever it is, whether it be child benefit, whatever it is, I'm taking that as the provision of the Lord, and so this first 10% is first fruits, and it's the Lord's. And then I'm looking for opportunities of, okay, Lord, well, that's gone because that was yours anyway. (laughs) But now with the rest of it, how can I give generously and sacrificially to you? I've always done that. That's what I've done. What do you have to do? You have to pray about it and decide for yourself. You have to prepare your hearts and work out for yourself, Lord, how can I give generously? What does generous giving look like in my life? One of the things I've always had to work through is, you know what, if it was 10% in the Old Testament, then why is it now, several years on, thousands of years on, in countries in the West where we are stinking rich, has it now gone down to about half a percent? That just doesn't even make sense in light of Scripture. If sacrifice is real and Jesus Christ gave his whole life and every dime in your bank account is his, let's bear that in mind when it comes to preparing our hearts. This isn't ours. It's all his. And it gives us a divine opportunity to give for the glory of God. And so as we start a new year, pray about it. Consider it. Set aside a time to contemplate, okay, well, Lord, what would you want me to give this year? And settle that before the Lord. And use all these things as a backdrop. Don't be tricked by your heart. But use all these things as a backdrop. That where I put my treasure, my heart will be. Lord, I want to give in such a way, like King David said, I want to give in such a way that doesn't cost me nothing, but it costs me dearly. I want to give in such a way that it hurts me. You see, if if in our lives, if in our lives as believers... If you look at an income as a believer and as an income and an unbeliever and they're exactly the same, if our lives and quality of life as a believer is exactly the same as the unbeliever, then that makes no sense at all. We should as believers be going without things. There should be things that you just think, well, I can't do that. And I don't mind not doing that because there is great joy in giving to my God and King. And I'm living for eternity and not for now. If those things aren't taking place... We have to beware that and weary that behold an idol may well be in place. We're meant to be aliens and strangers in this world. And yet so often we live as just people of the world. And then God's on top. God's not on top. He's everything. So set aside at some time. Number one, look, at the, look in your diary and plan a time to pray about what God would have you give. Number two, and this is to fathers. Dads, I encourage you to then lead your families through this same process. So I think often money is something that can be not talked about at home for whatever reason, particularly in England. Nobody ever talks about how much they were doing. That would be like, you know, unbelievable thing to ask. So often in homes, money is not talked about. But fathers, we're called to train our children in the way they should go. And so we want to be teaching our children, I believe, even from a very young age, that this pocket money is not actually yours. It's been provided by God for you to steward. So what do you want to do with it? It's so easy to raise kids that are materialistic and just think that we're trying to be kind to them. But we're called to train them. We're called to help them see that this is the Lord's and we're called to steward it then for his glory. And so fathers, lead in that. 
parents where you haven't got a dad around, I believe God will give you grace in this and he'll equip you in this. And that is good. And you are more than up to the task by his grace and for his glory. But dads, where you are around, step up to the plate. This is your role. This is your job. Train them in the way they should go. And number three, for all of us, if your eternal perspective is weak, then buy any book by Randy Alcorn and read it. I mean, that guy just has such a gift of grasping heaven, considering future tense things. Buy a book to The Treasure Principle or Money, Eternity and Possessions or one of his novels. There's a few of them on the bookshop. Just buy them and get them. If you are finding it difficult to separate yourself from this this world, then engage yourself in the heavenly realms. They're good books. So that's the second point. We need, by God's grace, to prepare our hearts in advance. And number three, we need to ask God for his abounding grace. It says it in verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Folks, if we want to be cheerful givers, if we really want to do that, then I think most importantly, it is absolutely vital that we be a people that are crying out to God for his grace. I mean, if you're anything like me, then I regularly have to ask God for his grace, particularly when it comes to giving. You see, if as you examine your heart, you are not leaping for joy at the end of a three-week series on giving, saying, thank you for Jesus, I can't wait. That shouldn't surprise you, because the flesh is evil. There's things in our heart that want to stop us, that want to detract us away from what is taking place in our lives. It shouldn't be a call for us to be condemned then if we find our hearts aren't ecstatic about giving. We shouldn't be condemned in these things. No, this should be a call by the grace of God to cry out to God for grace. When we see that our hearts are not ecstatic about giving, it should force us to our knees to ask God for his grace. We can't leave the meeting saying, you know what, I could never be a cheerful giver, therefore I won't. We leave the meeting going, I'm struggling to be a cheerful giver, therefore I need to pray more. I need to ask for more grace. I need God to help me. Because this is an opportunity to do something he loves. And I'm struggling to do it, so Lord, help me. That's a different way of looking at the same thing. We need to be a people that are crying out to him for grace. Listen, do you want God's grace to abound to you in this area? Do you want it? Do you want to put to death materialism? Do you want to live differently from the average person in Sydney? Do you want to ensure that your life is invested into something that will last forever? Do you want to ensure that by God's grace, Christ is on the throne of your life and not the other many idols that we're bombarded with every day of our lives? Well, then cry out to God for grace. Ask for it. Ask for his help. If you're struggling to let go of materialism, I can understand that. We live in about the top 3% of the world's richest people. The Bible has a lot to say about rich people and often it's not great. It's filled with warnings for us. We need his grace. We need his help. We need his assistance. If you're finding it hard to trust God in your giving, if you're finding it actually too hard to actually part with the cash, then cry out to him for grace. And listen, I understand that. Because I experienced that loads of times. When I was 19 years old, I got engaged to a girl. We'd been going out three months, and I thought that was more than long enough. She was pretty. So we got engaged, and I gave up university. 
Now, I was studying civil engineering, but I thought, oh, I won't bother with that anymore, I'm getting married, who cares? Bought a cheap house, it was good, bought, took out a car loan, and it was going great with all these loans, because she was quite wealthy and, and I wasn't. The problem came when six weeks before the wedding date, having all my family bought all the goods, having got everybody booked into the hotel, she decided she didn't want to get married at all. That was slightly problematic. Financially, it was a nightmare because I earned, at that point, £7,500. So that's, I earned $11,500 a year. I had a mortgage and a car loan. And I remember my dad ringing me saying, so uh, what are you thinking about doing? I said, panicking is what I'm thinking about doing. <laughs> and he said, well, son, I know the man you are. And one of the things I want to encourage you in is don't stop giving. I'm like, are you joking? Is this like a sick joke? You know, what do you mean, don't stop giving? Because I was stopping giving. There was just no way. Like, you know, this is, this is a ridiculous circumstance. But he said, son, if God is faithful, you can give. All right. Any chance you could give me a loaner? No? Okay. Um, okay. So I did. I, was complete, I got to the point where I just thought it wasn't even massive faith in God. What it was is my bank account is so ridiculous anyway. What will another 15% or whatever make any difference? So just that's fine. We'll see what happens. So I started giving. And I rocked up at the church. It wasn't a lot of money because I wasn't earning a lot of money. And I gave, gave, gave my offering. And that week I remember going to work and the lady said, hey, listen, do you need a sofa? I'm like, wow, that'd be, that'd be really nice. I've been sitting on the floor for kind of a while. And so, okay, great. She said, oh, we've got a table as well because we're moving. And, oh, all right, well, great. I don't think I can get it to my house though because I haven't got a van. She said, oh, that's all right. We'll hire a van for you. Really? All right, great. So they rocked up with this table. And next week I thought, this is good. So I gave again. And the following week, my manager called me in and said, hey, listen, we want, to really, we want to promote you. We want to put you on a different pay scale and give you a promotion. I thought, this is genius. This is absolutely fantastic. And then when I came home from that evening, somebody had left a whole bag of food on my doorstep. I thought, this is unbelievable. So I put it all in the fridge and I thought, I, I like giving. So every week then, I just started giving. And you know what I began to find? God is faithful. I'm so pleased that my dad encouraged me to give. Because if I hadn't, I would have never experienced that adventure of faith. But through giving, I experienced that God can be trusted. And that genuinely was a life-changing experience for me. It's one thing knowing it. It's one thing reading it. But when it's you on the end of it, and you see God proving himself to be faithful time and time again, that changes your life. That goes from theory to life. So I want to encourage you, if you're struggling to trust God in your giving, don't use that as an opportunity not to give. Give and cry out to him for grace. He'll give you it because your adventure will indeed begin. Now, folks, if you're struggling to give cheerfully, then ask for him for help and he'll help you and then all glory will go to him. And so, why sacrifice? Why? Well, sacrifice gives us the opportunity to point our hearts to things above. Sacrifice gives us the opportunity to trust God and to see that genuinely work through in our lives. And sacrifice gives us the divine opportunity to do something that God loves. It's not all about the money, is it? It's about us. It's about our hearts. It's about God doing things in our lives. And so I want to encourage you then, take some time out in the next week or two to consider what would God have you give. There is no special offering. There's nothing happening out the norm. 
We don't particularly need loads of cash. But this is about you. What do you want to reap? Sow accordingly. And so prepare some time in the next few weeks to consider what would God have you give over this next year. And then let's do it. And as we do, would we know the joy of being cheerful givers? Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you that it is practical, it is clear. Lord, you don't leave us guessing in your word as to what we're meant to be doing, but you you not only give us the headline, but you then sit with us as your children and explain to us how we can go about being these people. Lord, we want to sacrifice in a way that mirrors your sacrifice for us. Lord, not only in our finances, but in our whole lives in our energy, in our time, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our resources. Lord, we want it to be all about you. Our lives have been bought with a price. Lord, did we then live in a manner worthy of the price? You're worthy of our praise, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.